Well, good morning again, Redeemer. Welcome, welcome. If you have a Bible, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 23. We're going to be looking today at verses uh, 15 through 29, finishing out this chapter. Get there here. Before we do that, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the ministry, Lord, of Samuel and the prophets of God who recorded David's wanderings. We, we need, Lord God, so badly to hear your faithfulness and goodness to David in these, in these days, for our, our days are much like them. We are surrounded on every side. We are hunted. We are um, divided within ourselves as, as your church, as your people. I pray, Lord God, that as we consider uh, what happened to David in the wilderness, uh, that we would reflect upon what happened to Christ in the wilderness and that what is, in fact, happening to us in the wilderness. We thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. And we pray, Lord God, that you would open our hearts and open our ears, that we would hear you and understand you this morning, that we would grow in our faith and in our obedience to you. In Jesus' name we pray, and amen. Now, in all the rugged and dangerous topography and geography that David wanders through, in this section they, they describe a lot of different um, actual natural settings. David is wandering around from hill to hill, rocky crags, valleys, wilderness. It's a very bleak, <laughs> like just imagine some sort of bleak cityscape opening on some movie, post-apocalyptic film. This is what it seems like David is wandering through. He's not in the city. He's not amongst friends. He's not in a civilized place. He's in the wilderness, and he is alone. But his safety is not what rests in his hands. It's not his sword or his spear that gives him strength, that gives him confidence, that gives him hope, that gives him boldness. It's in whose hands he rests. That's what uh, the last sermon two weeks ago about, was about. It's not what rests in our hands that gives us strength, but it's in whose hands we rest that give us strength. First Samuel twenty three fourteen ends with this. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Saul could not lay a hand on David because the hand of the Lord was upon David. And as long as the hand of the Lord rested upon David, nothing would come, no harm would come to him outside of the Lord's will. Nothing could hurt him. Nothing could de- to defeat him. Nothing could tear him down. Not, like Saul can search high and low as much as he likes. He's never going to find David because David is nestling in the hand of the Lord. David... Um, has the faithful one standing amid the infidelities of his life, just as Christ and Paul later would. This is how Paul describes David's scenario. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16 through 18, this is what Paul says of himself, and it was true of Christ, and it was true of David. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear, So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The faithfulness of God's love and fidelity to us in the lion's den and to us in the fiery furnace is the ground of our faith. This is why we have faith. This is what we stand upon. Not our own work, but the fact that the Lord never departs from us. The ever-present one does not leave us. That's why he's called Emmanuel. He is the God with us. He came and he rested upon us and he has not departed and he will not depart. Now, as much as possible, we should go to extreme lengths to encourage one another in God's faithfulness. But remember that even when it appears that we are alone, we are never, in fact, alone. That great Puritan, that great man, John Knox, was a galley slave. He, in, in the, that was how he spent his middle years, as a galley slave in a French galley. And he used to row by uh, St. Andrews, the church where later he would preach. <laughs> but he, he was um, a man who said this. He went on to preach to monarchs, of course, the great John Knox. He said, a man with God is always in the majority. He would look the Queen of Scotland in the face and say, you're a heretic and may God damn you. And people would say, where does he get such boldness? And it was because every time he walked into the lion's den, he knew that the Lord was with him. When, when, you are, when God is with you, you are always in the majority. It does not matter what you see with your eyes. Having saved Kalah, 
Through his timely departure, David now acts to protect his own followers. His strategy involves three key elements. First, he is frequently relocating himself. He keeps moving from place to place. Second, a a preference for remote frontier locations. He's now in the desert of Ziph. This is what David is doing. He He knows the Lord is with him. He knows that he is protected. And so he is himself being a protection to others. And he's able to do this because of his confidence in God. So here he is leading his little band of followers, moving from place to place, going into remote and deserted places, residing in defensible locations. He doesn't just sleep on some open hill. He sleeps on a hill covered in trees. He sleeps on a hill covered in rocks. He's very hard to find, and the people that go with him are as safe as he is because he is loving his neighbors like his God is loving him. He, he will not depart from these people. He will not leave them to their own devices. He is wisely and, and prudently guiding them in the wilderness, just like he himself is being guided in the wilderness. The people of Israel wanted a king like the other nations. That's what they wanted. Way back in chapter 8, what they wanted from Samuel was, give us a king who will lead us in battle. Give us a king that looks like a king, who will wear armor and ride on a chariot and go out ahead of us. And the Lord said, fine, here, you can have Saul. And for a time, Saul did it. He led them, and he defeated their enemies. But something has happened to Saul. Saul can no longer discern the enemies of God from his personal enemies. He can no longer discern the war for God's kingdom for his personal vendetta against David. God has rejected Saul because he wouldn't fulfill God's command in putting the Amalekites under the ban. Okay? So Saul, who could not tell the difference between friend and foe, was rejected for, by God for not fighting the right battles. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 13 through 14, it says this, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul did not have a heart after God. David does. Why? Because David's in the wilderness leading his people at great, ex- at great danger to himself like the Lord is leading David in the wilderness. And what is Saul doing? Saul is attacking God's anointed. Saul can't tell the difference between an enemy and a friend, between the Lord's anointed and the Antichrist. He can't tell the difference. And all through this entire book, what, what has happened? Who keeps coming back and again and again and again and assaulting the land and threatening Israel? Who keeps coming back? The Philistines. Saul is out wandering around looking for David, forgetting the previous chapters and where the Philistines are again and again and again attacking the land. This is in chapter 4, that's what I preach about. In chapter 5, 6, 7, 14, 17, 18, and 23. In every one of those chapters, the Philistines are running amok. In Saul's own day, in Saul's own day, the soldiers in Israel could not even have swords and spears because the Philistines would not let them. The Philistines are obviously the enemies of the people of Israel, the people of God. And yet, what is he doing? He's out hunting David down. He cannot tell the difference between a friend and an enemy. Saul is seeking a vendetta against David because some people sang a song about how David was greater than Saul. How dare them? Right Now, how <laughs> David killed his ten thousands and Saul killed his thousands. That's what originally set him off. How dare you say he's stronger than me? How dare you say she's prettier than I am? How dare you say that person has things that I don't have? How dare you? And this envy has caused him to be a murderer. This envy has caused him to completely lose his mind and chase David down and leave the land completely open to attack from the outside. Now, does this sound familiar at all? Now, I'm not talking about you necessarily at the moment. That'll come later. (laughs) But somebody whose famous evangelical mind goes out there and he says something on Twitter. And everybody else says, right? And he gets all those likes. And then somebody from down at Desiring God says, well, how dare that? And And you have all this envy and you have all this infighting. And you have Christians now writing books about other people's Christian views on on whether or not the father and son are co-equal. And, and last year, there was, this was a whole thing. And people in my, in my profession kept asking me about it. And I was like, I don't care. I don't care about this. I don't care what so-and-so's views are. I don't care about his Crossway book deal. I don't care. 
And this is what you see going on in evangelical land. How dare they let that guy go to that conference at Ligonier and not me? And so much of the Christian church is divided over this kind of nonsense, the singing of songs. <laughs> you sing a Bethel, a Bethel song at your church? You sing a Hillsong song at your church? You're like, what, what are we, David and Saul here? We're going to get upset about the singing of songs? The irony is lost on many. Saul is searching for David to do him harm, motivated by envy, motivated by contempt for God, motivated not by justice, not by God's will, but because someone liked David more than they liked Saul. Are you that petty? This whole time, that's the question. Who are you hunting down? Who are your enemies? Why are they your enemy? And I want to weigh the words of your heart. When you're meditating on the word of God, when you're meditating on current events, when you're praying to the Lord, if we weigh them, what is the weight that is on your heart? Who? Why? What? What are you pursuing? Right? What are you going after? Can you discern the enemies of God any better than the guys at Ligonier and desiring God and Crossway? Can you discern the enemies of God any better than Saul? Have you ever stopped to think about those people that you're so vehemently opposed to are not actually the enemy, right? This is what, what happened. Jesus comes, and he says, hey, I'm here to fight Satan, sin, and death. And they're like, no, 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 not Satan, sin, and death. We're here to fight the Romans. He says, well, I'm here to fight you too. And because they could not discern the difference between the enemies of God and the friends of God, they put our Lord to death. And this has been the besetting sin of the church before and after the coming of Christ. We have a very difficult time telling the difference between enemies and friends. And we are no different. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. This is what it says. It's very important. Now, these things happened to them as an example. They were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. And in reference to this, he's talking about Moses. He says this story about Moses and this story about idolatry and this story about whoring after they made the golden calf. That was written down for you. And what I'm here to tell you today is this obscure story in the Old Testament where David is hiding from Saul and Saul is hunting him down. The Philistines, meanwhile, come and attack the land is written down for your instruction. I could tell you stories, okay? For, the, for 15 years, the PCA has been attacking N.T. Wright and, and, and Peter Lightheart, and they're going after justification by faith alone and this thing called the federal vision. Don't even ask me what it is. I can't even define it. Nobody can. And they hunted these guys down for 15 years. And you know what came in the back door and raided the land of the PCA? Wokeism and sexual confusion. They were looking over there, and they are saying, go get these guys, go get these guys. And all the while, right, the enemy came in the back door. Now, I could tell you lots of stories about that. But that would just distract us. And I think this is exactly the kind of thing that we do. I can tell stories about that, and we want to tell those stories and say, look, those people can't tell the difference. But I want to ask you this question. Who are you pursuing? Who are you pursuing and why? Who, can you discern the difference between the enemies of God and the friends of God? Can you tell who you're supposed to be fighting? Now, when you look around, is part of the problem that you're having with the other people sitting in this room is the fact that you think they can't tell the difference between the enemies and friends of God. And so now they're your enemy. We have a massive problem when it comes to this. And this story is not some weird Old Testament story about David and his difficult days. This is a story about you and I. This is a story about the church in our own day. So we turn to 1 Samuel, and we read this in chapter 23, verses 15 through 18. David saw, saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Now the text does not say how Jonathan knew where David was. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say what he had to go through in order to get out there, because what Saul is hunting down anyone and everyone who's giving David help. And here his own son, Jonathan, just happens to know where in the middle of nowhere David happens to be. And I imagine that he went through a great deal of risk because he probably had informants in, in the palace keeping track of him, keeping track of where he's going, keeping track of what he's doing. 
And so at great personal risk, he goes into the wilderness to find his friend. And the text itself is, is strange, because what it actually should say is that Jonathan goes out there and he puts David's hand to the Lord's. That's why he went. At great expense to himself, at, at a great deal of risk to himself, he goes into the wilderness to find his friend, to put his friend's hand in the hand of the Lord's. He goes out there to encourage him. Because it was the Lord's decision to, to install David. This is what he's telling him. David, don't you know what's happening? The Lord has chosen you. And not only that, Saul knows it. Everyone knows it. I know it. You know it. Saul knows it. Everyone knows it. We're, all, we're not talking about what's really going on, Jonathan is saying. Because what's really going on is that Saul is a rejected son of God. It says in 1 Samuel 18, 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Jonathan goes out there and says, listen, man, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Right? You keep posting those things on Facebook. You keep blogging the way you're blogging. You keep not wearing that mask. You keep doing what you're doing. You keep defying tyrants. Do it because it's working and because he knows and you know what's really going on. And my question is this. Do you think everyone in our day knows exactly what's going on? It's not a mystery. We are so stupefied and the world is so stupefied. It's not going on behind a closed door somewhere in Washington, D.C. They know they're tyrants and we know they're tyrants and we all know what's really going on. And what we need is someone to come to us and say, listen, put my hand in the Lord's. Tell me again that, this, that our times rest in the hand of the Lord. I wasn't supposed to cry until page eight. <laughs> we all know exactly what's going on. And so what, what do we do? Are we going to get angry about it? Are we going to attack people who say they don't? Or are we going to go to our friend who needs it and say, here, let me put your hand in the hand of the Lord's. Jonathan is fulfilling exactly what the Lord wants of us in such times. It says in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. 1 Peter 3.8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, does that describe the church over the last 18 months? Let me read it again. Does, does this sound like us? Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, immediately you'd be like, well, we don't have the same mind. So does all that other stuff still apply? Well, let, let me ask you this question. When, when you don't agree with your brother, what does the Lord tell you? How does he tell you you should act? Should you prefer yourself or them? Ooh. <laughs> wait, wait. But they're wrong, Mike. They're telling me to just get vaccinated so I don't lose my job. They're telling me uh, that um, I, I owe black people money because my, some grandparents of mine who were living in this country long before my family ever came owned slaves, and now I owe people money, and I'm supposed to just go along with all this crap. Well, okay. Um, when, when, when Jesus was at odds with his own family members, when he was at odds with the household of Israel, how did he act towards Israel? Now, was bold? Did he, tell, did he stand up for his, his, his mind? Yeah, but did he make enemies on purpose with the right kind of people? Right? Was he ever ungentlemanly? Was he ever rude? Did he ever sin? Can you say that you've debated with people in the last 18 months and not sin? Well, <laughs> that's a joke. Of course we have. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Does this matter more? Does this matter more than our views about red states and blue states? Does this verse right here matter more than our views about masks and mandates and vaccines? Does this verse right here matter more than whether or not our songs have 14 bridges in them? Let the hearer understand. Jonathan has renounced his claims upon the throne. It was his throne, and he doesn't want it because he understands that the Lord has given it away. Uh, this, this is um, something that I've been told time in and time out, is that, that most people have never heard of a church where you, you have one pastor, and he leaves, and then another guy takes over, and you don't lose anyone. You tend to lose a lot of people when you have transitions. Do you know how many families this church lost because of the transition? None. None. <laughs> 
And that's because it was never Dean's throne. It's not mine. This is how Jonathan acted. It's not his throne. Did he have rights to it? Yes. Does he renounce those rights because God gave them to someone else? Yes. He doesn't grasp it. He doesn't hang on to it. He's humble. And he goes to his friend. He says, listen, the Lord is with you. My father knows it. You know it. I know it. And and matter of fact, you have it, brother. I'll stand next to you. I will defend you. I will be with you. Jonathan is one of the humblest characters in the entire Old Testament, and we should all be a great deal more like him. Look at what he's risking simply to go out and remind his friend of what he already knows. Humility, selflessness, courage, obedience to God's word. Jonathan is strengthening David's hand by reassuring David of whose hand he ultimately dwells in. David, you dwell in the Lord's hands, and my hand is holding on to your hand, and you're not alone in the midst of this. Certainly, it's likely that with the treachery of the Ziphites, which we're about to talk about, who are feeding Saul information that will nearly lead to David's arrest, if you couple that with the fact that David had just saved Kalah, and those people were also going to turn him over, do you think it's possible David feels a little alone in the wilderness? Right? The Ziphites are of his own tribe, by the way. His own tribe is willing to turn him in to Saul because they want to save themselves because everybody knows that Saul is a murdering madman. And in the midst of all this, you can just imagine how alone David feels. I saved this town at great expense myself. They would have turned me over. I'm wandering around in Judah, of which I am a member, and they're going to turn me over. And here is Jonathan, the son of the king, who would be put to death, in it, right? Saul's already tried to kill him two other times. And he is here, defying tyrants, strengthening his brother, putting his brother's hand in the hand of the Lord's. This is the strength of Christian community. Is this the kind of strength that we have? Why not? Right? Are, is, are we willing to go to great lengths, great personal expense, great, right, to risk a lot of, our, of ourselves in order to place one another's hand in the hand of the Lord? I would say, this is one of those times where these questions, everyone's starting to think in their own minds, oh, no. I would say that we do. I would say our testimony over the last 18 months, the last two years, last five years, last 15 years, I don't even know how long I've been going here, has been exactly that. And we need it more than ever. And the world needs it. And other Christians need it. That's why, look around, right? There's several of us who have been here 15 years. Look around. You notice some new people, don't you? Right? And why? Because the testimony of this church is that we are the kind of people that will come and find you in the wilderness and put your hand in the hand of the Lord's. And this is, what, this is glorious, and this is our testimony, and this is the rock, right? Here's Christ, the cornerstone. The rock next to it, upon which we build, is brotherly love. Don't grow weary of it. When you go and you talk to one another in each other's homes, when you're talking to one another midweek, don't get, obs- don't get obsessed with identifying these enemies and hunting them down and talking about the tyranny. and rah, 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 rah. Talk about the Lord. Talk about the goodness of the Lord. Humble yourselves and prefer one another and encourage one another that, uh, in who, about whose hand we rest in. This is what it says in Colossians three fifteen through 17. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. See how many times it says giving thanks? Right? If you're out wandering around in the deserts near Kalah and you're trying to find Jonathan and David, follow the singing. You'll hear them. You, you tell me Jonathan sneaks through the enemy lines and comes out to his buddy, and they're not out there playing hearts together. Right? Jonathan's dropping a sweet beat on the bass. And, right? is that This is the Christian community. They're encouraging one another, and they're doing it with song. They're doing it with thankfulness. They're doing it with gratitude, and they're doing it together. David needs to be reminded of who guided the stone that he threw at Goliath. He needs to remember that. Right? He went out there in all that boldness in his youth. Right? He had gone through some things at that point, but he's been through a great deal more since then. And he threw that stone at Goliath and had all the faith, all, all his faith was in God. Now at this phase in his life, he's seen a, a thing or two, and he needs to be reminded, when you threw that rock, who was really throwing it? Who was really guiding the stone that day? 
He needs to hear this because this is here. Now we're going to look at what's going on in the tribe of Judah. In chapter 23, verses 19 to 23, it says this. Then the Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding amongst us in the strongholds at Horish, on the hill of Hela, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desires, to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. Oh, how noble. And Saul said, And may you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go and make... Uh, yet be more sure, know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he is very cunning. I just want how does he, he's told that he's very cunning? You keep losing to him, Saul. You didn't figure out already all by yourself he's cunning. I'm just, just commenting on the text here. Saul's a bit slow on the uptake. So therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with sure information, then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the households of Judah. Well, and do what, Saul? Both David and Saul have intelligence gathering networks. These are very important in times of conflict. I'm reminded often of Michael Collins, that great IRA founder. (laughs) During the Troubles in Ireland, the reason that he was able to defeat the massive British intelligence agency is because he had an intelligence gathering network that is largely what people base their gathering networks on now. He had spies everywhere. He knew, ex- he knew what his enemies were eating for breakfast. He knew how many hours they slept every night. He knew where they slept. He knew everything about them. In warfare, intelligence gathering is very important. Let the hearer understand. We're probably not going to get it on CNN. Just saying. Right? They're now banning drones flying over Texas. Why? Why are they doing that? Let me just give you a little piece of information to chase down. The federal government has declared that you cannot fly drones or helicopters over the Texas border with Mexico. Go and find out why. Okay? We need decent intelligence gathering uh, organizations now more than ever. But I love this about the story. It's a little detail, a little espionage here that I like a lot. David had received crucial information regarding Saul's activities and and intentions from Jonathan, who happens to be of the tribe of Benjamin, while Saul is receiving valuable information about David from the Ziphites. It's like a Bond movie here. They're like informing on one another. So Saul's guys are telling David things about Saul, and and David's guys, (laughs) his tribe, are telling Saul things about David. Who's going to come out on top? In the end, is all of this intelligence gathering the thing that gets them victory? Is it helpful? Yes. Is it the thing that gets David victory? No. Now, not waiting for Saul to threaten them with destruction, because Saul has already sent people to kill at Nob, all the priests. They're not going to wait. Everyone knows that this guy is a madman, and he will murder people. And so the Ziphites are like, you know what we ought to do is get out ahead of this. We should be on the right side of history. We should go to the king and tell him where David is, and that way it'll look like we're helping him. We're helping him, and then he won't murder us all. It's very noble. These are very noble people. Now, no doubt the Ziphites hope to profit in some way from their betrayal of David. And David, this is what I love about this. You know, Dante's Inferno, if you guys ever read the book, all of Dante Inferno's, uh, Dante's enemies are actually characters in the Inferno. And it's hilarious because we get to read about what he thought about his enemies for a turn, like as long as the book is printed. And what I find about David is it's, this, it's a similar thing. It's where Dante learned about it. Because this whole uh, episode... David wrote a psalm about it. So we can tell exactly what he thinks of the Ziphites who went (laughs) and tittle-tattled on him to Saul. And this is what it says. This is Psalm 54. Now, hold on. Do you remember what Saul said about them? May God bless you for having compassion upon me. Because Saul can't tell the difference between an enemy and a friend. But here's what David has to say. O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me, ruthless men seek my life, they do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper, the Lord is my uphold, the upholder of my life, he will return the evil to my enemies, and your faithfulness put an end to them. With a free offering I will sacrifice to you, I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies." Now, in this poem, what does David think of the Ziphites? Well, he thinks that they don't know God. He thinks that God is going to vindicate him against them. And, and look, does he say, give me strength that I might vindicate myself? 
No, he says, who, right? He's in the middle of nowhere, out in the wilderness, hunted down by a tyrant. And he's saying, God is my helper, and God will defend me, and God will vindicate me, and all I'm going to do is what? Sacrifice to the Lord. Keep my eye on him. I'm going to set him before me, and I'm going to look upon him, my helper, and I'm going to, to obey him. And, and David can tell the difference between those who are obedient to the Lord and are his friends and those who are disobedient to the Lord and are his enemies. Now, Saul, interestingly enough, is looking for very specific pieces of information, and it's very telling about where he's at. First, you need to know David's routine and regular locations. Tell me where he goes and when he goes there because I want to ambush him. Second, he needs to know who has seen him because he's a jealous man. I want to know who was out there talking to him because I'm going to not only kill David, I'm going to kill anyone who was helping him while he was out there. No doubt Saul would be displeased to learn that his own son was there, but I think he's figured out already that Jonathan and David are pretty close. Now, the king needs help, right? <laughs> and who are, who's his help? David says, my help is the Lord. Saul's help is who? A bunch of backstabbing Ziphites. Who would you rather have on your side? Okay, in the fight that we're in now, who would you rather have on your side? Right? I, I can find a few backstabbers for you. But would you rather have the Lord on your side? And, and your times are in his hands. And right now, could you sit down and could you write Psalm 54 about your enemies? This is why this was recorded for our understanding. This story was written down for such a time as this, for such a people as us, fighting the enemy that we're fighting. Saul can't get this done himself. It's so amazing how, like, there is a moral element to intelligence. And over time, the more immoral you are, generally speaking, the dumber you are. Because you worship dumb idols, you become like them. Saul is an idiot. I'm just going to say that right now. Okay? He's increasingly stupid. And he was a very smart guy at the start. Well, maybe not. I don't know. He was hiding amongst the baggage. But even that was a low start. He's gone even lower than that. Would you trust the Ziphites? Would you say that, that God bless you? Right? Why is it that Saul is having so much trouble finding 600 guys in, in a desert? I mean, Judah's big, but it's not that big. Now, what's interesting here is that the information that he is given actually pays off, and things get a little touch and go for David. Let's read what happens in chapter 23, verse 24 to 29. Now, David and his men were in the wilderness of Mon, in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. Man, there's a lot of Hebrew names there. Whew. And Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that he pursued after David in the wilderness, Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain, and David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and, and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. Now Saul eventually tracked David down to a very particular hill. So the, uh, clearly the Ziphites are giving him information that is good. And so he goes out there to hunt him down. There, it's a landmark in this area. You can, you can still see it to this day. There's this hill there that has these rocks upon it. It's quite clearly a place that you would hide. Saul and his forces are closing in on David and his men to capture them when a providential and ur urgent message comes. Now, this episode is full of all kinds of irony. David was a more successful warrior than Saul. Remember? David rose up with his 600 men and went to the, the city and, de and defeated the Philistines and routed them and took all the bulls and they ran off. <coughs> Chapter 23 begins and ends with a Philistine attack, but you see two very different conclusions. The Philistines don't... Go Right? They don't stay away. They don't stay gone. When the Philistines attacked Kalah, David went to the help and became the city's savior. Saul, however, gathered his men to march to Kalah only after he learned that David was there. So he, he, his intelligence gathering network is, is a little spottier than David's. A Philistine attack was not enough to get Saul out of the house. He was only willing to mobilize against David, right? He, came, he comes to Kalah not because there's Philistines there, but because David is there. So all those people from that town, why would they ever help him? Because where was he when they were under attack? They, right? The people of Kalah can't tell the difference between the Savior of Israel and the enemy of Israel. 
A Philistine attack is not enough to get Saul out of the house. It's David. This is his only operating. So now, do you think it's a little surprising that he'd really be willing to give up David so easily when he's so close to capturing him? And again, this just shows the intelligence of Saul. Just pursue it to the end. You're like so close. Why would you stop now? Right? You clearly don't care about Israel. David was in the wilderness And this is the ironic twist here. When Saul hears that David is there, he pursued him into the wilderness. David is in danger of being boxed in and surrounded, and at the last moment, he receives this message. Now, previously, Saul had used the Philistines against David. He thought, okay, well, here's what I'll do. I'll I'll send David out to fight the Philistines, and they'll hopefully kill him for me. And now God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to send the Philistines to save David. So the, the weapon that Saul tried to use, the Philistines, to kill David is the very weapon that God is using to defend David. And this irony is, is beautiful, right? right? We think, oh, I'm going to do my enemy some harm. And little do we know the thing that, we're, that is going to harm our enemy is actually God's providential way of saving them. Because we are always outwitted. There is a greater conspirator than any human being that has ever lived, and he has a conspiracy of life, and he will use anything to bring life about. Whatever God wants to use, he will use. Whatever we try to do, thinking we're so wise, all of that's turned on its head because God does what God wants to do, when he wants to do it, how he wants to do it, and he is always successful. (laughs) I mean, three years ago, we used to pray that, that, and pray, and pray, and pray about what? What would we pray about? Well, come on, put an end to public school. Put an end to this Hollywood sports entertainment that's just all, that everyone's whoring after all the time. And we're like, you know, what we, God, could you do it? Could, could you do it? And what does he send to do it? The very same thing that he uses to close churches down. You're like, wait a minute, God, I don't know. Maybe there was a, a mistranslation. Okay, that's not what I meant. But the right, but what has it has it ever been more clear about who are the Christians and who aren't? And I am going to say a super judgy thing like that. You're like, oh, now it's like everyone put on uniforms. Like before, I just assumed we were all on the same page. Now, what God is doing with all of this craziness is simply going around assigning uniforms to people by having things happen. People react to what happens, and you're like, oh, I'm not going to say blue and red. Oh, look, green and yellow. The green team and the yellow team. We think we're so smart. We think, okay, God, fight this person who I think is an enemy. And God comes and he fights all of his enemies. Those who are in the church and those who are not. He is bigger than we are. He is smarter than we are. He's been at this a lot longer. And he knows exactly what he's doing, unlike us. How often are the conflicts, the frustrations, the pursuit of sin and enemies just a distraction from the real enemy? Now, I can admit this, right? I will sit down and I'll be like, Lord God, show me an enemy that I can fight. And, I, and, and something through prayer and the reading of the scripture, an enemy is revealed, and I think that's too big. How about this? I'll just go over here and attack this little enemy. How about that? That seems like it's a, a, a city I could take. Now, how often are we, when we're asking for God to show us our enemies, really interested in seeing the enemies? Right? What if he's like, okay, cool, it's right in this lion's den. Oh, it's just this giant standing in the field. See, we don't want to know who the real enemies are because they're terrifying, right? Who wants to go against the principalities and powers of the air? Now, when we say that's what God wants us to do, we say that, yeah, we're against the principalities and powers of the air. Do you know what a principality and power of the air actually looks like? Right? It's an angel that's fallen. And so usually when people see them in the Old Testament, you know what happens? It's, it's like their face is melting. It's like they fall down like they're dead because it's so terrifying. Do you actually want to know who the enemies of God are? Do you really want the Lord to reveal that to you? Right? Or, or are you satisfied with the enemies that you recognize yourself, that you appoint for yourself? Well, my brother-in-law, he seems easy. I can run circles around him on Facebook. You're like, and God in heaven is like, not the enemy I was talking about. <laughs> Who are you pursuing? If we weighed your intentions, if we weighed the words of your heart, the thoughts, the prayers, what weighs heaviest on you? Who weighs heaviest on you? 
Why? Right? God's desire is that the whole world would be saved. And so he sent his son to accomplish that. And then he says, hey, you, because I've accomplished that, go out and tell the world about it. Bring the nations in. And we think, man, that's a big task. Like, can I just make fun of my neighbor who's an atheist? Right? Can I just, mo- like, can I just mock the Seattle City Council because they're stupid? That is a lot easier. That's low-hanging fruit. Anybody can do that. But can you love your neighbor who's really unlovely? Right? This is why I'm teaching ethics to my kids. You're like, no, guys, it's super simple. You love the people who hate you. You're like, okay, have a good, have a good day. When we really talk about what we're supposed to be doing, nobody really wants to do that. And so we, we check down for the David option. Well, who's somebody who's just really pissed me off and irritated me? And I'm going to attack that because that's a lot easier than the fact that I drink too much or the fact that I can't talk to my wife about our banking situation. I'm I'm speaking metaphorically, not myself. I know. My my wife looks nervous. We're having neither of those two problems. I was speaking metaphorically. Right? We go for the check-down option. We go for the neighbor we don't like. We go for the thing that is easy and low-hanging because it because we feel like we ought to be doing something. Saul pursues his personal vendettas, giving vent to envy and murderous pursuit of his covetousness and his jealousy. All the while, the real enemies are invading Israel and whooping them. Right? They just keep, they keep coming back. They keep coming back, and they keep coming back. And, and David, or David is not real problem then, is it? Right? How was he doing when he was using David against the Philistines? He was doing much better. So the main weapon that the Lord has given him to fight the Philistines, he is himself now attacking. Our greatest weapon is love. Our greatest weapon is unity. And are we using those two things against the proper enemies, or are we attacking them? Are we actually attacking the love and the unity of the church? Now, there's a little thing here, just at the end. This is why translations are so important. It's not, it should not actually be called the rock of escape. The verb from which the name derives usually means divide. Hence, it's actually the rock of parting, or the rock of divide. Now, I think a lot of people who, when I was reading commentaries, kind of miss this play on words here at the end, because this is, I think, what the story is really about. The nation of Israel is divided you got Saul, who can't tell the difference between the enemies of God and the friends of God. you got David cursing people that, that Saul is blessing. And here they are, chasing each other through the wilderness, while the Philistines are coming down and raiding the land. And these things are written down for us, because this is us. We use the very weapons we're supposed to use against the real enemies of God. We have gone to war on them. Love and unity. Matthew twelve twenty five. Knowing your, their thoughts... Jesus said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Is the church standing at the moment? No, and, and, and this is my thing. Can you tell me why? Can you tell me who the real enemies of it are? Who are the enemies of the church right now that are causing us not to stand? Right? Can you do that? Could you just, can you tell your wife and your kids? Can you tell your husband? Can you tell your coworkers? When you sit down to encourage one another to place your hand in the Lord's hand, can you actually encourage one another in who the real enemies of God are? David's day, they didn't know. When Jesus came, they didn't know. What makes us think we know? What makes us think we know? Go away and find out what this means. Who are the enemies of God? Who are they? Where are they? Who are they? What are you supposed to do about it? What are you given to fight it? David responded to the treachery of his brothers, the persecution of an evil king, with flight and escape and not open warfare. This is fascinating in this part. He's not going, right? He, he, he doesn't turn around and then go fight Saul. His way of dealing with it is running. His way of dealing with it is hiding. His way of dealing with it is, you know what I'm not going to do is engage in this battle. Why is it that so many of us are just dying for a battle? Right? I'm encouraged all the time in this, and I need to hear it all the time. Mike, you do not need to go and fight people. They will come to you. Right? I don't need to look very far for enemies. I just need to do what I'm supposed to do, and they come. Trust me, they come. But that's, right? No, I don't want to do that. 
I don't want to preach the truth and have people get angry about that. I don't like that guy in the cut of his hair. Right? Look at that dude with the pink hair and his tats. That guy looks like gross. I'm going to go get that guy. I'm going to go on Facebook, clearly, where there's a great deal of reason and understanding. (laughs) And I'm going to talk about people's hair color because that's easier than preaching the truth to people. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges. Now, I want to say this, and this is where we turn to the end. People quote that to me all the time. And, and this is what it doesn't say. It doesn't say he didn't fight. It says he fought a certain way. Now, if you're attacked by an enemy, you can fight them without reviling them, can't you? Right? Did you, this is what's so unbelievably misunderstood about Christ. On the cross, is he fighting or isn't he? Is he winning or not? Does it look like the world? When, when I get into an engagement and I have some Christian brother come along and be like, hey, man, it says right here. He's like, what are you telling me? You're telling me? Are you telling me how to fight or telling me not to fight? If you're telling me not to fight, just leave me alone. You know not what you're talking about. Now, if you're encouraging me, if you're putting my hand in the Lord's hand because you want me to fight a certain way, fine. I'll take that <laughs> rebuke all day long. But I, what I will not stand for in these days is people who say we ought not fight. It's we ought to fight a certain way. Chapter 23 sees David in a particular difficult stage of his exile. He's maturing. He's growing up. He's becoming ready to be a king. He's challenged by the Lord to think not merely of his own survival, but also that his duty to his neighbors, even as he continues to suffer the grievous plight of betrayal and hatred. It's not just you, David, against a Goliath. It's not. It's not just you on a battlefield by yourself fighting a giant. You are in charge of people, and you have to take them with you. God sustains David through this trial with great resources, the revelation of his word, the encouragement of a fellow believer, and an oasis in the wilderness. In verses 19 through 28, they teach us what providence means, the strange ways that God works to keep his own people on their feet, right? Of all the aid that David's going to get against Saul, it's going to be the Philistines? The Philistines are going to help him? 1 Samuel 23 does show what resources Yahweh gives his servants in the middle of their trials so that they can withstand the pressure. Now, the true darkness, well, let me go back because I don't, I don't think I said this, in Gedi. In Gedi, this word in Gedi. He's in this place called in Gedi. And it actually is a way out in the middle of like what's properly the desert. And it, it's actually a spring of water. So in the end of this story, everything he's been through, David is sitting by, right? He's on a, a grassy field with streams of flowing water, resting with Lord amidst all the stuff that he's going through. This is how the chapter ends. And the thing that, he was, that was used to save him was the Philistines. And David learned a little something about his responsibility to Israel. And if you sat down with David, this is why Jonathan went to see him. If you're like, David, how is it going right now? And you're like, dude, it's full of darkness. And what David comes to find out at this time is that, that dark, it's not actually darkness, it's a shadow. And the reason that it looks dark is because the Lord, his God, is standing over him and is casting a shadow upon him. And it is in that shadow that he rests. Can you tell the difference between the Lord's shadow and darkness? I can't. I have a very difficult time telling the difference. Because things happen, you're like, I am surrounded by darkness. And it's actually the shadow of the Lord who is defending me and protecting me. Other times I'm like, man, it's really cool breeze here in the shadow of the Lord. You're like, no, dude, that's darkness of your own making. I have a very difficult time discerning this, and this is why we have got to learn not only how to to discern the darkness from the shadows, but the enemies from the friends. What David has learned through this entire chapter, everything that he's been through is this right here, Psalm 23. This is a gospel according to David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down by green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table 
before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me in the, all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, if David who's abandoned by everybody but Jonathan and the Lord, hunted down by a tyrant, a man who can't tell the difference (laughs) between the enemies of God and the friends of God. And, And think, how hard is it for him to give thanks for the Philistines who have come to his aid? Thank you, Lord, for the Philistines? Thank you, Lord, for President Biden? Could you imagine such a thing happening? Imagine that. If you, if you can imagine that happening, you understand what David is going through here. Unity and love is what we've been given. Don't be the enemies of unity and love. Use unity and, and, and love to fight the true enemies of God, Satan, sin, and death. There are giants in the land. There is real darkness. We, we go through the shadow. And who is with us always? The Lord. And if we're with him, we're always in the majority. And what we need more than ever is unity and love. We need brotherly affection. We need someone to come alongside us and say, here, let me take your hand and put it in the Lord's. What we need to do is give thanks for everything, even the Philistines. And, and this is how we fight. Right? I, I'm telling you, anyone who tells you we, we ought not be fighting right now is a liar and of Satan. What, they, what we ought to be talking about is not whether, but how. Right? I, I'm, I'm done convincing everyone that we need to. Now what we need to talk about is how are we going to do it? And we're going to do it through unity and love and brotherly affection. And understanding that this is the Lord's world, everything is in his hands, and he is in charge. And he is the one who tells us how to do it. He's the one who tells us who to fight. And if we go to him, we will receive both. Together, we will be able to take on what's coming and what's all around us. With one another and with the Lord. There's no other way, and amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for um, David and uh, everything that he struggled with. We thank you for the prophets who recorded it, who have given us this lesson. I pray, Lord God, that as we go from here, we would be able to discern the difference between shadows and darkness, between friend and foe, and that we would show one another love, and through that love have unity, that we would stand together upon the rock of Christ, and that we would prevail. We, we know, Lord, that you will vindicate us. We know that those who are opposed to us have turned their face from you, and we pray, Lord God, that you would give us understanding and insight and wisdom and compassion and love to fight together as we are called to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.